Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Blue Shield of California, rebuilding the future of health care with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash Adapting Care. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine, and we've got a Halloween show for you. We're starting today's show in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta at a haunted warehouse on Mare Island. Nightmare Island. Oh, man. It was pretty scary start to finish. We were screaming the entire time. We were screaming the whole time. That's Sarah Phipps from Santa Rosa and Jennifer Tiergarten from Napa. They say they screamed so much, they nearly lost their voices. Yeah, it was like a pretty wide range of just like a lot of animatronics as well as lighting and like there was fog and then... You know, you would get kind of confused on which who was actually a real actor. People in costumes and animated puppets create these scary scenes, like a pet graveyard with Michael Myers peeking out from one of the gravestones. Clowns chasing after visitors with chainsaws. A diner with Jason serving decapitated bodies. A butcher area where you have to push past covered corpses hanging from the ceiling. And there are more deranged clowns banging on locked cages. David Cox and Jennifer Morris live nearby in Vallejo. Just every corner, uh, something scary jumping out at you. It was really fun. We both said we want to work this next year. (laughs) Actually, the setting on Mare Island is kind of spooky year-round. Back in the 1850s, the U.S. Navy established this as the first naval base on the West Coast. 
Hundreds of warships and submarines and landing craft were all built here, and then it closed 25 years ago. Today's haunted house is set up in this military warehouse that's a century old. The, the scene here, like the Disney Imagineers could not have built something that was more, um, a little bit eerie, a little bit spooky, quite a bit abandoned. It's called Halloween's Nightmare Island. And Sarah Kane is the director of operations here. And, you know, as you're driving here, there's ambiance, right? It looks like it's haunted, you know? (laughs) Very little light on the streets, historic old houses, and warehouses with nobody else in sight. It almost feels like you're completely alone. On today's show, we're going to bring you stories for the spooky season. Haunted houses and lighthouses. Remembering the dead and trying to find them again. We're going to start in Pomona with a ghost hunter. That place is just really, really eerie. The voices, it feels like you're being watched, footsteps. So hopefully we're able to experience that tonight also. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) But what reporter Peter Gilstrap found on his supernatural adventure was kind of unusual. Spirits who decided to show up at a location that has more to do with dead chickens than dead people. And a ghost hunter driven more by his emotions than cheap thrills. Victor Huesca has been visiting hotbeds of the supernatural for the last 15 years. He says he's seen some chilling stuff. So as I turn around to walk up to to the stairs... I see an arm reach out to grab me. This happened at an abandoned sanatorium, and it does get weirder. But it had no body. It was just the arm by itself. I remember the way it looked. It was super hairy, but it was just an arm floating. It's the kind of thing he lives for. Reaching out to those who've gone the way of all flesh is an obsession with Huesca, something that began when he was a child growing up in East Los Angeles. My dad passed away when I was around five, six years old. And I always wondered where he had went. And it wasn't until I got older where I wanted to investigate places and, you know, explore the beyond. He's never tried to reach his father. Wesca says he wouldn't know how to react if he actually made contact. So he's always left that particular exploration alone. As he grew up, Wesca became a fan of horror movies. That led to an interest in ghost hunting TV shows. And as a teenager, he bought paranormal investigation gear online and jumped into the field looking for supernatural action. On his first trip to a derelict hospital in Downey, he hit a haunted trifecta, voices, footsteps, and screams. But for Huesca, it's not just some frivolous spook show thrill ride of otherworldly noises down dank hallways that could just as easily be the wind or raccoons mating. But after that initial taste, he was hooked on something bigger than fear. It's weird to say because I 100% believe, but I just want, I want more. So the fact that at least I can kind of get some sort of proof to know that there is life after death instead of not knowing what's going to happen, at least it's, it's like comfort, so to say. But some of the interactions get a little too close for comfort, like the time he took a late-night trip to a sanatorium in Kentucky. Whatever I had seen over there followed me back home and was trying to attach itself to me. So it was, it was really, really, really bad emotionally, where I was close to not even ghost hunting anymore because it was that bad. So why did you continue? It's a passion of mine, and it's something that 
I could say no to, but it's something that I just love doing and I cannot stop doing. And we're doing it tonight at Pomona's Spadra Cemetery. Deborah. Hello. At the locked front gate, we meet the woman with the keys. Deborah Clifford is president of the Historical Society of Pomona Valley, which owns the cemetery. She's our connection to this land of the dead. So I'm Peter. This is Victor. Hello. Nice to meet you. Victor is our ghost hunter. Oh, I, I should get my lantern. Yeah. Okay, I'll be right back. Spadra is a small, forgotten place wedged against the roaring 57 freeway. It opened in 1868 and closed about 75 years later. The place radiates a vibe that falls somewhere between sad and creepy. Most of the tombstones are missing or broken off and jagged, like a mouthful of bad teeth. This has long been a happy hunting ground for anybody with a Ford F-150 and a chain. And so you, you roll in, you lasso a headstone and take it with you. Spadra is not open to the public, but people break in looking for more than just headstones. They come for the ghosts. Later, many file breathless Yelp reviews on the terrorizing entities they experience here after dark. But that does not discourage Victor Huesca. He's ready to take on the darkness, armed only with a lantern and two ghost-detecting energy meters. They're about the size of TV remotes. When paranormal energy is near, one lights up. The other gets a bit more emotional, which sounds like this. Now, as the sun sinks and the moon rises, we set out among the graves. Our first stop is ground zero for supernatural activity here, the grave of a man who died in 1921. James Fryer is one of the famous ghosts here at Spadra. He'll uh, make noises, he'll show himself. This isn't Wesca's first visit to Fryer's resting place. And the last time he came, Wesca says Fryer wasn't doing much resting. Out of nowhere, I felt just strange. And from the corner of my eye, I saw this dark figure just like looked over my shoulder. It either wanted me to get out or it wanted to let itself known, but it, it, was, it was really creepy. So we wait for the dark figure and we wait some more. Are you here, James? And a little more. We just want to communicate with you, James. Can you light up the device that I have holding in my hand? It looks like James is uh, busy with something else. Yeah, he's not having it right now. Is there anybody else here? Anybody else want to communicate with us? But Wesca's pleas fall on deaf, dead ears. The ghost meter doesn't squeal and no shadowy figures look over our shoulders. We decide to call it a night at Spadra. But just a couple miles away, there's another place that just may be the portal to the underworld that we've been seeking. Hi, welcome. I'm going to get you started. And can I ask you a question? Go ahead. Is this place haunted? What was that? It's a Mexican fast food restaurant but their chicken is crazy good. Beyond that, doors are said to slam on their own. There are supposedly footsteps where no human walks. And back there among the guacamole and grilled thighs, word is you can hear disembodied voices. Why is it haunted? I don't know. But it says so on the internet, so, you know. Anyway, Victor and I go in, and I tell them what we're looking for. Uh, my man just said you can't do it in here at all. So we go outside. But in that brief moment inside, Wesca's meter was on. Now his face looks like a kid's face on Christmas morning. 
if that kid had asked Santa for communication from a dead person. And what, what happened inside just now when you had that thing on? It actually spiked up, the K2 spiked up to yellow. And I don't even see it do that at the cemetery. What does that mean? It means there's something around, like I detected some sort of energy. All right, it's not exactly a floating hairy arm, but after a ghost-free night in an old cemetery, some sort of energy in a fast food joint is way better than nothing. So you're not uh, bummed out? This is this par for the course? I- I'm bummed out because I really wanted you to experience something, but it's part of the ghost hunting experience that sometimes we'll, you'll get something, sometimes you won't. No, oh, I got something. Two tacos. <laughs> for the California Report, I'm Peter Gilstrap in Pomona. Happy Halloween. Did you hear that? Now she wants you to go home. That's supposedly the voice of another ghost. This one haunts one of the oldest and most remote lighthouses in all of California. It's called the Point Sur Light Station, and it's basically this cluster of buildings perched on a giant rock just north of Big Sur. The coastline here is spectacular, and it's mostly populated by sea lions. You can actually hear them faintly barking down on the rocks right below the lighthouse. The waters on this stretch of coastline are so treacherous that lots of shipwrecks have happened here, even after this lighthouse got built in 1889. So the rock that this lighthouse sits on is really isolated. It's surrounded by water on three sides. And the first lighthouse keepers who came to live here could only get their supplies by ship. It took four hours to get here by horseback from Monterey. But for the kids who grew up here, the lighthouse keepers and their wives, it was such a beautiful place. They fell in love with these breathtaking views. Julie Nunez is a ghost hunter. And she says a lot of those original residents have come back here in the afterlife because it's so stunningly beautiful. This is my Shangri-La. It's just utterly beautiful and peaceful. There's something about this place that's so calming. So it makes sense that ghosts want to come back here or want to be here. Yes. Okay, so she's not just a ghost hunter. She's actually a volunteer docent here at the lighthouse. And she's the one who recorded that ghostly... Now she wants you to go home. She's actually got a collection of these recordings, and she says you can often only hear the ghosts when you're playing the tape back. So it's a little bit hard to hear, but Julie says that's the voice of a former resident named Catherine Ingersoll. She was a Danish immigrant, and she was married to a lighthouse keeper here. And she's apparently telling her daughter, who is nicknamed Pokey, to go up to bed. go up to bed. Julie says that was recorded inside the house where the lighthouse keeper's families used to live. She takes me inside that house, but first she knocks and asks permission in case any of the spirits are still around. Hello, it's Julie. Hi, Ruth. Can we come in to visit? She's talking to this ghost named Ruth. Julie says that Ruth's spirit still hangs out in the kitchen of the house because she liked to cook. Is anybody else here with us for right now that we can't see? Pokey, are you here? 
Can you come say hi? I don't hear anything except the wind rattling the windows, but it is getting a little bit creepy. And it's hard to tell if this is just a hokey trick for Halloween because they have decorated the house with witches' hats and fake skeleton arms. Yeah. Okay. Wait, did something just Yeah, the, the hand moved. The fingers on the fake skeleton hand, they actually twitch. Just slightly. Well, whoever did that, thank you. Can you make the skeleton hand move again? The skeleton hand stays still, but I do start hearing this weird buzz in my headphones as I'm recording. So Julie steps in to help. Could you stop trying to get energy from the equipment? It's affecting their reporting on all of you here at Point Sur. Would you mind stopping the static? On the count of three, one, two, But the ghosts don't listen. The buzz stays until we leave the building. You're probably saying at this point, okay, all of this is just a gimmick to try to get people to visit this lighthouse. Even some of the other docents I talked to do not believe Julie's ghost tales. But there is one docent. Her name is Sheila Frazier, and they call her the level-headed Canadian. She says she used to be a skeptic, until she had her own encounter. This was real. This was unbelievable. Sheila is the one who volunteers to clean the lighthouse keeper's house every Thursday. And one morning, she was putting away the vacuum when she says she heard something downstairs. So I sort of stepped back like this to see who it was. And there was nobody, but there was a woman. And she was right here on this top landing. And she was turn of the century had her hair up. She's maybe in her late 30s, early 40s, long skirt. And the thing is, she was holding something. And I couldn't figure out what she was holding. She turned and looked up at me, and she was gone. And she, she looked like a f- real person, yeah, oh, yeah. flesh and bone. Yeah, absolutely. Even if you don't believe in ghosts, visiting this lighthouse is really eerie, even during the daytime. It's got lots of creaky doors. And the wind here is so strong, it can get up to 50 miles an hour. Julie says at one point, a lighthouse keeper's dog got blown off a cliff. It survived. Now the lighthouse is automated, and the last lighthouse keeper left here in 1974. So if you do come for a visit, you might be the only person here, besides one of the docents. And maybe the ghosts. I'm not totally convinced, but Julie is hoping we can talk to some of them using her ghost hunting equipment. So I got a couple different machines. This is called an ovulus. The ovulus is this black box and it has a dictionary of like 3,000 words. And supposedly each word has a different sound frequency that ghosts can use to talk to humans. And it has a kind of mechanical voice box. And the minute that we walk into what was the former blacksmith shop, the ghost dictionary starts squawking. Who's here with us right now? Walter. Hi, Walter. What? the hell. At this point, I am thoroughly freaked out. They're doing a radio show and they like to interview you, Walter. Wouldn't you like to be on radio? 
Walter doesn't say anything else through the voice box on the machine, but it does start flashing a few words on the screen. It seems like Walter or the other ghosts know who I am because they're words like press, report, investigate, statement, thank. I am a level-headed Californian myself, and I usually do not go for the supernatural or believe in ghosts. But I do have to say, as the sun starts to set, I am pretty relieved to be getting back to Highway 1. I am not sure I could handle walking through the spooky Pointzer lighthouse at night. We first aired that story back in 2018. The lighthouse was shut down for a while during the pandemic, but they're starting to do a limited number of tours again. During the day, when they say the early-to-rise, early-to-bed spirits are most active. I want to marry a lighthouse keeper and keep him company. The mystique of living in a lighthouse is enticing and eerie. But we don't often hear about lighthouse keepers or their families, except for a few examples in popular culture, like this song by Erica Eigen, from the soundtrack to the movie A Clockwork Orange. And now to a song that laments the end of a San Francisco Halloween tradition in the Castro neighborhood. It started in the 1940s as a Halloween parade for kids, and then as the Castro became home to a vibrant LGBTQ community, it became this joyful, over-the-top Halloween party each year. Until 2006, when gunfire erupted and nine people were shot. That violence put an end to the tradition. But it did inspire Chuck Prophet, a longtime neighborhood resident, to write a song about it for his 2012 album, Temple Beautiful. Here he is talking about Castro Halloween for our series, California Songs. When the shots rang out and two men died, you took off your mask just to see me cry. Everybody that knows me knows that I never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And, you know, we came up with the first couple lines, and, and I thought that someone had been killed. But I hate to joke around about it, but really, pe- people were shot, you know. Uh, I don't know the real life account exactly or how many people were involved. Um, I'm not a journalist. You know? <laughs> I don't really know what's, I don't know what's going on. I know the way I remember it. talking about, you know, having lived in the Castro for 20 years and what Castro Halloween has come to represent, really, which is everything that's cool about San Francisco, you know, tolerance and weirdness and, uh, you know, just one freak flag waving, you know, party. Halloween is gone. 
it's gone. It's one of those things. Like I don't always go down to the to the celebration, even though it's like four blocks from where I live. Sometimes I might just be at home with my wife watching DVDs of The Wire, and maybe you know we just like to know that it's there. It's gone. It's a mythological place, and you know, there's 27 different San Franciscos, and they all overlap, and everybody has their own version of events, and, and that's really the beauty of it, I think. But ultimately, for me, you know, I grew up in, um, you know, until I was 16, I grew up in Orange County. And uh, growing up, I really didn't have much in the way of culture. So San Francisco, for me, has been, you know, above everything, an education. Musician Chuck Prophet talking about the story behind his song, Castro Halloween. The California Report Susie Racho interviewed him back in 2012 for our series, California Songs. For a lot of us Californians, this time of year isn't just about Halloween. It's also a time when we're preparing for Day of the Dead. And that means making altars for our loved ones and usually covering them with marigolds. But those bright orange flowers aren't always really easy to find. We're going to bring you a piece now that we first aired back in 2017 when reporter Vanessa Rancaño met a farmer in the Central Valley who's been growing marigolds for people longing for a piece of home. With their flashy color and strong perfume, marigolds help spirits find their way back to their families. At least that's one theory about why they're the flor de muerto, the flower of the dead. Antonio Chavez never thought much about why the flowers are so important. He just always knew they were. It's the tradition our grandparents handed down, he says. The flowers are sacred. They're essential for Day of the Dead. Antonio and his parents left Oaxaca a decade ago and missed celebrating like they did back home. So a couple years ago, they started growing marigolds here, in Kerman, a small town outside Fresno. They farm a few acres along a country road, mostly squash and chiles, with a few rows of fiery flowers mixed in. The family just wanted some flowers for their own altar, but people started showing up, hoping to buy. So many people bought flowers, they ran out. This year, Antonio planted more. His family still gets first pick. Antonio reaches out to touch a few especially beautiful blooms. On the last day of October, they'll pick these flowers and make big arches out of them to place over the altar. They'll arrange others in the shape of a cross. They'll set out fruits and sweets for Antonio's sister, who died as a child. Tamales and mole for the grandparents who once taught him these traditions. And Antonio says these rituals are especially important now that his hometown in Oaxaca has been abandoned. Antonio's scrolling around in Google Maps, trying to find his village. Life was hard there, he says. No TV, no phones, no money. But he describes it as a beautiful place. It's tucked into a green mountain valley. When he was young, there was a school there and lots of kids. Not anymore. 
Only the elderly are left because they couldn't make the trip across the border to the U.S. It makes him sad to know that in a few years there won't be anyone left in the town. But Antonio Chavez says growing these marigolds makes him feel like he's sharing the spirit of the place with his fellow immigrants. Everything has changed, he says, but we haven't. We haven't changed who we are. For The California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in Kerman. Since we first aired that story a few years ago, Antonio Chavez has kept his marigolds growing. This year, though, it was a really tough harvest, and he couldn't grow nearly as many flowers. He says he only got about 40 blooms. He's hoping for a better harvest for Day of the Dead next year. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. This week's show editor was Lisa Morehouse. Our producer-director is Susie Racho. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer, and we had additional mixing by Seal Muller. And thanks to Gabriella Frenis for getting us the sound from Nightmare Island. This week, we say goodbye to our fabulous intern, Hector Arzate who's moving on to become the immigrant communities reporter for WAMU in Washington, D.C. Hector, congratulations. We wish you all the best, and thank you so much for the incredible storytelling and heart that you brought to our show. I'm Sasha Coca. You can follow me on Twitter at KQED Sasha Coca. You can also subscribe to our podcast, The California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for The California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just health care system on the web at chcf.org health dash equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fettah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.